the business plans that we look at is the first one is called buy and sell. That's the name that's generally uh, used or business continuity planning. Then you get contingent liability planning, which we'll be discussing, covering of a key man, staff retention strategies, and then also ending off with an exit strategy. How do you get out of your business one day when you retire? Um, so we'll go through some of these, these principles with you. Sadly, the topics are massive and we'll never be able to cover every aspect of it in today's discussion. Today's really just the high level, layman's terms, scratch the tip of the iceberg, and then we can dig deeper on a personal, personal note in consultation. So continuity planning. I think what's essential is, is to understand that as a business owner, we have got this baby. Let's call it ABC company that we are building, we're nurturing, and it's sometimes the biggest part of an in entrepreneur's wealth is in their business. And the problem is, is that most entrepreneurs are not necessarily the smartest person in the room. They, they need to surround themselves with people who are smart. So as an example, I understand a bit of law, but I'm not a lawyer. I understand accounting, but I'm not an accountant. But I do know a trade, and I'm good at my trade. So I have a business in my trade, and I need the expertise of my lawyer and my accountant, and now my financial advisor. So this is kind of like, I always use the analogy of like a Richard Branson type approach. I don't know the man, but I, I follow him. But I don't believe Richard Branson was necessarily gifted with absolute knowledge. I think he was a risk taker, an entrepreneur, a great ideas man, and he was good at putting people together. But I believe when he goes into a meeting, he goes in with his specialists that sit as his board. They'll look at a business or a business opportunity. They'll run away and do their research, and then they'll come back to him and say, right, these are the, the, the areas that we feel are at risk. These are the benefits. And then he would make a decision based on these experts' decisions and his gut as to what he believes the decision is going to be. Now, most businessmen start businesses and fail. I mean, it's, it's, it's the norm. They say nine out of 10 businesses end up failing. And as entrepreneurs, we never go into business worrying about failure. We always think of the success. But there's a very fine line between being confident about your business and becoming arrogant about the business or ignorant around the risks of your business. And that's the job of us as your financial advisors is to let you dream and blue sky and build. Our job is to sweep behind you, dotting all the R's, crossing all the T's and making sure that the foundations on what you've built your business on are actually sound, solid foundations. It's no use building a 50-story building with wobbly foundations it will fall over at some stage where so many people are building these castles of these businesses and they've never addressed the most important part of their business, which is their foundation. Now I'm married and I've got two children. My wife's name's Jackie and I've got a son, Dylan and my daughter, Jocelyn. When I got married, I took on a responsibility as a husband to provide for my wife. When we had children, I took on an additional responsibility to provide for my children. As a business owner, you have an additional responsibility to ensure the success of your business so that the people that you employ have got an income and a job at the end of the month. They've also got families that depend on the success of your business and depend on that salary check in order to survive 
and afford a lifestyle for education, medical aid, clothing, food, spending money, etc. Now, the sad part is, is that us as human beings are all faced with inevitable death. We are going to die at some point in our lives. We shouldn't ordinarily think about death, but again, your financial advisor's job is to discuss death. When you die and you're a business owner, you have a responsibility to make sure that that business will continue after your death. You may own the business in your own capacity and own it 100%. You may have shareholders that own it with you. Those shareholders, if they own it with you, also are going to die at some point. So we're going to be dealing with death and these shares at some point. The trick is we need to try and deal with it sooner rather than later. If you leave it until you die, we're going to have problems. So what we do is we enter into a, what they call a buy and sell arrangement. And this is where a business owner has the ability to sell their shares to their surviving shareholder for fair value and give their family the proceeds of that sale, which will form the foundation of their financial plan. So as an example, if I was to die today and my wife Jackie needed 40,000 Rand a month, I would need roughly 10 to 11 million Rand in cash invested that she could draw 40,000 Rand a month off every month, increasing every year with inflation until her death. Now, I might not personally have cash of 10 or 11 million Rand. I might have a million Rand in my bank account and I've got a business that's worth 3 million Rand. If I can mobilize the business and enter into a buy and sell agreement where on my death, my business partner will buy my shares for the 3 million, I've now got 3 million rands worth of cash coming into my estate. I've got my million rand in my bank account coming into my estate. So I've got 4 million rand of my own money, but I needed 10 million. I'm still short 6 million rand. I will then take out a personal insurance policy to top up the difference. When my review happens at the end of the year, I meet with my financial advisor, we reassess the business, my accountant gives me the financials and we go through the business and we find the business values increased to 4 million and the savings that I had had increased to 1.1 million. I've now got 5.1 million rands worth of cash. I only needed 10 for my family. I can reduce my life cover on my personal side to 4.9 million rand. And so this process will continue throughout your life, where as you're creating your own wealth, your requirement for insurance is decreasing until you get to a point where your assets are worth what your family need. And at that point, you won't need personal life cover anymore. That's the true message and the true methodology behind appropriate financial planning. But in the absence of doing business assurance planning, you would need to take out 10 million rands worth of life cover. If you had an investment of a million rand, you'd have a policy for 9 million and this business flapping in the wind with nothing happening on your death. So a very important thing is that you have some sort of continuity plan and we'll discuss that now. The next important thing to address is, is the value, the valuation method and the payment plan. As a business owner, you want to make sure that when you die, you know who the buyer is going to be before you die. We don't want to go look for a buyer on death. 
Because if your business is worth 10 million rand and you die, your executor needs to go out into the markets to try and find a willing buyer. And the willing buyer will go into a bidding war with your family and then you won't get true value because they want to get a deal. You may get 7 million or 6 million for the shares. On your death, you might find that your business value actually declines because it was dependent on you being there. Your family are getting even less value again. So very important that you agree who the buyer is going to be before death and you agree on a purchase price. You have a valuation method. So you go to your business partner and you two have a discussion and come up with an agreement that says the value of the business is worth 20 million rand. We are 50-50. My value is 10. Your value is 10. On my death, I want fair value. I want my 10 million. You enter into an agreement, the valuation is documented. On death, I'm going to get my 10 million rand. Now, once you've agreed upon that, you know that 10 million rand is coming into your estate. You'll have capital gains tax that you have to pay on the proceeds of the sale of the business potentially. But once that change is left in your account, you'll know how much money you've got left over after paying taxes. You can now work out what you need for your family in order to survive and then adjust your personal insurance to the value that you need in order to sustain their lifestyles. Now we get to the payment plan. My business partner's share is worth 10 million. My value is worth 10 million. If my business partner dies today, how am I going to pay? How are you going to pay? You can raise finance if you want to. You could go to a financial institution and borrow 10 million rand and probably pay 140, 150,000 rand a month repayment every month for 10 years to pay the debt off if you wanted to. Um, you could take it on your bond, draw a bond on your home for 10 million rand and you'll pay 90 grand a month for 20 years if you want to do it that way. Very expensive to do that. Or I could do it out of earnings. Now, if I want to pay you 10 million rand for the sale of your shares, I have to do it with my after-tax money. That means I would need to earn about 16 million rand in cash. I'd have to pay 6 million odd rand to the tax man to net 10 million rand. So the result is I would end up buying your shares for 16 million rands worth of my money to net you your 10 million rands worth of proceeds. Now, the problem with that is by the time I paid you for your shares, I probably would be very close to my retirement age. So what that would mean is I've spent my working life earning money just to buy shares that when I get to retirement, I want to sell so I can go on pension. Very counterintuitive. And in fact, a huge incentive for me to actually try and break contract and behave badly because it's not really palatable nor affordable for me to spend that kind of money. So what people do is they look for the cheapest financing mechanism to purchase a person's share in the event of their death. And that comes in the form of life cover. I can take out a policy on my business partner's life for 10 million rand, and I might pay 2,000 rand or 3,000 rand or 1,500 rand, whatever it is, 
depending on the guy's age and his health. But I'll pay three grand a month. Hell, I'd pay 5,000 rand a month for 10 million cover because it's only 5,000 a month. It's something that I can afford to pay. I can't afford 16 million rand in earnings. I can't afford 150,000 rand a month repayment on a loan or a 90,000 rand a month bond payment for 20 years. 5,000 is a lot more appealing. So most people would look to finance the purchase with a life cover policy, and that would be your payment plan. And all of those three things are documented in an agreement called a buy and sell agreement. Now, when we consult with clients, a lot of them say to us, we've got a buy and sell, we sort it. And when we sit with them, what we find is all they have is an insurance policy on their lives. They don't actually have the agreement. And this is where the biggest problem lies. Buy and sell is an agreement. It's not a policy. The policy is the financing vehicle to finance the transaction on death or disability. It is not a buy and sell work. In the absence of the buy and sell agreement, you actually have a massive liability in your estate. And I'll explain to you how. Let's use an example. You are my business partner, and we've got a business that's worth 20 million. You've got 10 million, I've got 10 million. I have a policy on your life for 10 million, and you will have one on my life for 10 million. If I die, the insurer will pay you the 10 million rand tax free into your bank account. That's it. The agreement because it's not been drafted or hasn't been signed, is now non-existent. That means there is no compulsion for you to use that 10 million rand money that you received to buy my shares. Nothing. You're just going to get a check for 10 million rand. My wife is sitting at home with the kids, waiting in anticipation for this purchase to take place. She phones the executor, the person who winds up my estate, and says, Hi, Bob, listen, Gary's partner has got a policy for 10 million on his life. You need to get hold of him because he's got to pay that money to us to buy the shares. He phones you and you say to him, No, 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 I've got this 10 million policy, but we agreed we were going to keep it because on Gary's death, the value of the company would drop, which meant that my earnings potential was going to fall away. Okay, and as a result, I needed 10 million on Gary's life to support me and my lifestyle. It's a personal policy, it's not for buy and sell. And this is where the fight starts to come in because now, if you're not going to buy my shares, it means my will is going to dictate who gets my shares. And in my will, my wife Jackie is the beneficiary, so she now becomes your new business partner. The problem with her is that she has got absolutely no idea about our business. She's never worked in it. She doesn't understand the staff. She doesn't understand the industry. And she adds no value to you as your business partner. All she wants as a shareholder at the end of the year or monthly is a share of the profits that are paid, which we call a dividend. So all she wants is dividends because she's a shareholder. She's not an employee. When I died, my salary stopped. She's now only getting profits. 
However, you're still alive and you're getting a salary because you're still an employee and you're getting 50% of the profits. So after a while, you're working this business and everything's carrying on. When you have meetings with Jackie, you get frustrated because she doesn't understand what's going on and she's checking the books. Now she gets her new boyfriend to come in and help because he's got a bit more acumen and you don't really like this guy. And the breakup in the relationship starts to get very, very, very messy between you and and Jackie now as business partners. Justification now creeps in where you start saying, Jackie, I'm doing all the work. Gary died. I'm sad and I'm sorry, but Gary's dead. I've now got the whole burden of this business on my shoulders. And I can't continue in the same way. I'm dying a slow death. I need to increase my salary by double because I'm doing twice the amount of work. Jackie's now sitting going, hold on. If you increase your salary, that's coming out of our company. It means I'm paying half of your salary and you paying half, but you're getting 100% of it. Added to that, if I give you more salary, it reduces the profit. And if it reduces the profit, I get less money. I don't want to do that. Now you end up in an argument with your partner around dividends versus income. And this is where the leverage starts to get really, really bad. So you eventually turn around to Jackie and say, well, Jackie, you know what? If you don't want to pay me the money, then you do the job. She can't do it. What's made it worse now is that this relationship has aggravated itself to a point where there's no, there's no way to recover from this. But you have still got that 10 million rand lying in your bank account, which is fantastic starting capital to open up another business next door and start trading our business in your business for your benefit at 100%. So slowly you start whittling this business down to nothing, which means Jackie's income reduces more and more and more and more until eventually there's nothing left and you have moved all your customers over, moved all the staff over, and you've started up a brand new ABC company all on your own. And the surviving spouse is left with nothing. So buy and sell is a protection mechanism for both the exiting party, the person who dies or gets disabled, and the remaining shareholder. The beauty of it is no one knows who's going to die or get disabled first. We just know one of you will die or potentially become disabled at some point. And when it happens, we've got an agreement that deals with it. The tragedy for Jackie, my wife, on my death is not only did she suffer the loss of a husband, which she would have mourned for probably 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so, and then she would be joining again, but not only would she have suffered the loss of a husband, she's now suffered a loss of an income of the business, and because you got the 10 million rand in cash and you didn't pay it across to buy the shares, the receiver of revenue is going to tax my estate, 20% of the proceeds that you got. So in layman's terms, you get a check for 10 million and you behave badly. My family pay 2 million rand in estate duty because of the existence of the policy. Now you'll find in 90% of the businesses that we look at, the person who dies doesn't actually have money in his estate to pay the estate duty. He hasn't made provision for it. He's got life cover, 
but he's put his family on his beneficiaries, which means on, their, on his death, the insurer pays the family member, the beneficiary, directly into their bank account, not into the estate. The executor who's winding up your estate, all he's got is your assets and your liabilities. And the only way he can pay the liabilities and the taxes and the two million rand estate duty is by selling my assets, my after-tax assets. In other words, my family home is now going to get sold to raise cash to pay for two million rands of estate duty that you benefited from by getting your 10 million rand. It's now up to my executor to pay that liability, sell my assets, which normally get sold on auction, and then try and recover it from you if you haven't spent it yet. So my message on buy and sell is if you're a business owner and you've got buy and sell insurance policies in place and no buy and sell agreement, it's actually a liability, not a benefit. You can do whatever you want to do to pay for it. Insurance just is the most practical, most cost-effective way to finance it. Okay. Now, when you're doing buy and sell, we talk about death and disability. In the insurance industry, we use disability as a living death. In other words, you're as good as dead to your partner if you're disabled. Because disability is the inability to perform your job as my business partner. If you can't fulfill your occupation in our business, the insurer deems you to be disabled, which then gives me the money to buy you out at fair value. I give you the cash, I take over the business and the responsibility. If I make a success of the business, fantastic, I did it. If I fail the business and it crashes and I lose everything, it's on me but at least you as a disabled person have exited the business, got fair value, and you can invest that however you deem necessary uh, in investment vehicles that are appropriate for a disabled person to survive the rest of their life. All right, so what to look out for when it comes to buy and sell. The first one which we spoke about is that estate duty implication where you don't have the agreement and the person doesn't purchase your shares. The other estate duty complication comes in as if you are not partners with your business partner. And I'm just explain that a bit. I am your business partner, but I don't have the shares in my name. My shares in ABC company are actually owned by another company, okay, that I own. Your business partner in law isn't me anymore. Your business partner now is my company the other shareholder. So if you have a policy on my life to buy my shares, you are not my partner. My company is your partner. A state duty will apply to that insurance policy. So you've got to be careful of that and make provision for it. And we will be able to advise you on that. Another one we come across often is where your other shareholder is not a company, but a trust. So you form the company, 
you have your shares held by a family trust or a business trust, or your partner's shares are held by a trust. That is a perpetual entity. It will never die. A trust does not die. So your partner, Bob, the guy that you're in business with, if he dies, the trust will still continue to be your shareholder. But now Bob won't come to the office anymore. You will now be dealing with Bob's family or Bob's trustees. So you've got to be very careful around corporate structures where you've got companies as shareholders and trusts as shareholders. The whole dynamic is very, very different. And that's why I would advise speaking to a specialist when it comes to buy and sell and your structure. And that is what we do. The next thing to be careful of is what benefits you put on the policy. If you take insurance to finance the transaction, the only two benefits you'll have is death and disability. When it comes to disability, there are different types of disability benefits you can buy. You've got to make sure you've got the right disability benefits. There's only one benefit that you can have on your disability policy, and you've got to read the fine print to see the definition but it's called Own Occupational Disability. It pays out if you, have, if you have a problem or a claim event or health-related claim where you now have an inability to perform your specific nominated occupation. All other disability benefits do not belong on a policy. Um, uh, so we will go through that with you to make sure the benefits are correct. Another one is being careful of terminal illness. If your partner or yourself are diagnosed to die within 12 months, so you've got a terminal condition, you're diagnosed to die within 12 months, the insurers will actually advance you your life cover before you die. So just to understand that, I own a policy on your life and you own one on my life. You get diagnosed with terminal cancer. The insurer will pay me out 10 million rand in cash and you haven't died yet. Now, if our, if our agreement doesn't make provision for me to buy your shares on terminal illness, you won't get the money. It's my 10 million. So be careful. Worry about preemptive rights. If you don't know what that means, simply put, if I'm your business partner and I want to sell my shares, if there are preemptive rights in our agreement, it means that you have the first right to purchase the shares. In other words, I need to offer them to you first before I can offer them to anybody else. So that's a protection mechanism so that you don't inherit a new business partner and you didn't even realize it was on the radar. And this happen, happens often where preemptive rights are not included in your memorandum of incorporation and you and your partner have a bust up and he sells his shares to your competitor. He gets his money. The competitor is now your partner and there's nothing you can do about it. And they have access to all your financials because they're shareholders, all your customer base, all your products and all your staff. And they can literally infiltrate that business, rip and strip it at half price, pull out all your work and you haven't got a leg to stand on. If they've got a bigger checkbook than you, you're in trouble. So make sure you've got preemptive rights. Now, in the New Companies Act, it is prescriptive that every single company has a memorandum of incorporation, and that memorandum of incorporation deals with preemptive rights. 
Most people ran out into the marketplace and they got a memorandum of incorporation because it was a statutory requirement that you had one. But they went for the cheapest option. They just went to any accountant or law firm and said, I need an MOR, quickly, give me an MOR. And it was a vanilla MOR, bog standard. In that MOI, it does mention preemptive rights, but the preemptive rights that it mentions only applies to a company that issues extra shares, new shares. The preemptive rights apply to the new shares. They don't apply to the shares that have already been issued. In other words, the shares that you own now. So be very careful. Part of our due diligence process is to get a copy of your memorandum of incorporation and we read it through to make sure that it is conforming to your business and your needs and your requirements. So important that that gets done. Repudiations of claims due to non-disclosure. We've seen this in the past. It's very rare. But sometimes somebody lies on the application form and doesn't disclose of an underlying condition where they would ordinarily be uninsurable. So take cancer as an example. A guy had cancer three or four years ago. He's your business partner. He applies for insurance on your life. You apply for insurance on his life. And he omits that he had cancer. The insurer knows no different. They assume that everyone's been honest. They issue the policy for 10 million rand. The partner dies. You now are contractually bound to buy those shares for 10 million rand. But the financing vehicle to buy the shares doesn't pay out because he lied. So now you're stuck with a 16 million rands worth of earnings problem, pay SARS the six to get the 10, because he lied on his form and you didn't even know. So we've got to deal with preemptive rights is one thing. Repudiations of claims are completely separate discussion. What happens if someone lied and the claim is not honored? On an insurance policy, there's a two-year exclusion for suicide. The first two years of your policy, suicide exclusion. What happens if your partner commits suicide in the first two years? The policy won't pay. What do you do? Expiration of risk benefits. Some policies have got a term. They expire at a certain age. What happens if the guy dies or gets disabled after that age? But be careful of that. And then, as I said earlier, if your shareholder is a trust or a company, you've got to watch that as well. So the results of no buy and sell agreements could be your surviving partner leaves your spouse as his partner and trades that business down to nothing, keeps the cash and has starting capital to start that new business on the side and exclude your spouse. There may be a situation where there's no agreement, so your executor now needs to sell your shares and find another buyer. But the buyer that they bring to the table, so here's the example, I die, you come along, and you say to my wife, Jackie, listen, I'm going to buy the shares for 5 million rand. Jackie says, no, no, no. Gary told me last night, just before he ate the poison mushroom soup, that the company was worth 10. So I'm expecting 10. And you say, well, it maybe was worth 10, but we didn't agree on 10. And Gary was very, very important in this business. And because he's dead, the company has suffered a financial loss. It's not worth what it was. I'm only paying you five. Jackie says, well, I'm not happy with five. And you say, well, I'm not buying at five. Go find someone else. So off, you, off she runs. She goes and finds another buyer. He comes to the party and says, right, I'll pay five and a half million. 
she's come back to you and she says, all right, I've got to buy it for five and a half million, but there's preemptive rights. Would you like to pay five and a half? You say no. She says, cool. My new partner, the, the new partner would like to meet you. So the new buyer comes into the first meeting. You act like an absolute pupil at the meeting and you harass and you, uh, you aggressive and hostile in the meeting. And that buyer gets scared away. He picks up the phone and he phones Jackie a bit later and says, listen, that partner's flipping loopy. I'm not putting any money into that business. I'm out of here. You then phone the partner and say, right, listen. Uh, sorry, Jackie phones you and says, listen, um, that five million, I'll take it. And you say, I'm sorry. I'm actually only going to pay you one and a half now. Um, this business has really been suffering. My wife is now stuck at the mercy of you or you, your wife is stuck at the mercy of me. So very, very bad um, position to be in. Your family gets less than actual value. Your partner, your competitor could become your new business partner and decimate your business. And so the story just unravels. It's really not a nice place to be. So the message is, if you have a business, you have to have an up-to-date, tailor-made memorandum of incorporation and a buy and sell agreement dealing with the disposition of the shares on a death or a disability. If you're in business on your own, you don't have a partner, we can do a buy and sell with a competitor, with a friend, with senior management in your company, a staff buyout. There's many ways we can structure a buy and sell to ensure staff con uh, business continuity. The next topic is around sureties. So sureties are things that you would sign at a bank or any financing uh, institution where you need to raise capital for your business and you are asked to sign a personal surety in respect of that debt. So here's an example. I've got a company and we've bought a building and it's got a bond and we've rented the building out to tenants. It's a commercial property and we're getting some rent. And the bank have presented you with a surety document and you've signed the surety document. Most surety documents are automatically joint and several surety. So what that means is if we bought a building for 10 million rand in a company and we put 3 million rand down as a deposit and we financed the 7 million rand bond, we would sign a joint and several surety and it's a tripartite surety. In other words, the company is signing surety for the debt and then you and I as the directors or shareholders are also signing a personal surety. In other words, we are using our assets, our own personal balance sheet to secure the risk of that borrowing or that lending from the financial institution. It means that the bank can go to you or me or the company or all three of us. They can choose. So that's a joint and several surety. They also use words like co-principal debtor, which basically means that the company is a debtor, I am a debtor, you're a debtor. We both all in it. They also use words like unlimited surety, which means that the surety is not limited at all, has no limit. It can include the entire 7 million rand borrowing. Each, the company's liable for 7 million, you're liable for 7 million, I'm liable for 7 million. And if there's any legal expenses that are incurred in the, um, in the, the recoupment of this, this money from us, where the bank have incurred the cost, those costs will be added to the surety. So we're responsible for all of those fees as well. 
That's an unlimited surety. Now, in practice, as an astute business person, you want to limit your surety as much as possible. There are some instances where you can't limit the surety because it's either accept this and sign the surety or we're not prepared to lend you money. Maybe your balance sheet isn't strong enough or whatever it might be. But if you can negotiate with the bank, what you want to try and do, point number one, never sign personal surety. That's the starting point. In other words, when the surety is signed, you will sign as a director on behalf of the company that the company is responsible for its own debt, not you. You absolve from that surety completely. Now it's not a personal surety anymore. It's just a surety for the company. If the loan is in default, the only thing that can happen is the bank can come to the company and force the company to liquidate its assets to repay the debt. But they can't come to you. But if you've signed a personal surety, then what you must do is just limit it. You say, all right, company will sign a surety. I'll sign surety. And so will you as the business partner. But I'm only a 50% shareholder. So I'm going to sign for 50% of the 7 million, not the whole 7 million. So I've got a 3.5 million rand surety. You've got a 3.5 million surety. That would be fairer. Okay? So that's limited surety. Then in the surety document, they also refer to things like the excussion clause. Now, the excussion clause means that if it's wavered, the bank do not have to follow the normal route of debt redemption. In other words, they don't go to the company to get the money. They can go straight to your estate. The easiest path, the place where the money is lying. So here's an example. You and I in business, we bought this We've got this company that owns the property, 3 million rand deposit, 7 million rand borrowing. We've signed joint and several surety, co-principal debtors, not limited. 7 million each. I done. That document allows the bank to go straight to my executor, to my estate, and force the executor to settle the full 7 million rand on behalf of the company. Now let's take one step back. We did a buy and sell. You bought my shares out the company. You now own the company 100% that owns the property 100%. I'm not a shareholder anymore. I'm dead. You've got the business. It's got 3 million rands worth of equity in it, 7 million rands worth of debt. The bank come to my estate where all my buy and sell proceeds are sitting. They take 7 million rand out of my estate. If the state hasn't got 7 million, the executor will be forced to sell my assets to raise the 7 million to pay the bank back their 7 million. Now, a lot of businessmen argue and say, rubbish, this is a commercial property. It gets rental and the rental services the bond. The bank will never come to my estate. Instead of arguing it, all we do is we phone the bank. And we say to the bank, all right, if I die today, are you going to come to my state? If the bank manager is a friend of yours, he'll probably say, no, your kids go to the same school as my kids. We mates, we bra on Saturdays together. We watch the rugby together. Everything's pinned event. Everything's normal. All you need to do is say to him, please, can you give that to me in writing? Because if the bank will give it to you in writing, 
that they will not come to your estate to get the money. It actually means that you don't have a personal surety. They've um, released the personal surety. But if you can't get that document from the bank, releasing you from your surety, then you are bound to it. The day you signed that document, you told them you can go to my estate. And there is nothing precluding them from doing so. Some business people say to us, I don't want to cover the liability. I don't want to take cover out to cover this company debt. Our response is very simple. The day you signed your surety, you did cover the debt. You've covered the debt when you signed the surety with your own assets. You've said to the bank, I'm borrowing $7 million and you can come and take my house, my car, my granny, my goldfish, my share portfolio, whatever you want, you can take it to settle that company debt. That's what a personal surety is. So don't for one second believe that you have a choice in covering the debt or not. If you've signed a personal surety, the deal is done. It's covered. All we want to do is change it. What we propose is putting in a contingent liability plan that says when you die, the company will take out an insurance policy on your life that on your death, the insurer will pay the company the surety value that you're exposed to. So if you've limited the surety, it will be three and a half million. If you haven't limited the surety, it's seven million. The company will get seven million rand tax-free cash and it will use that seven million to settle the company's debt and release the surety that you have signed with your bank and your estate. That's how it works. You die, insurer pays your company, and then the company uses the money to settle the debt and release your surety obligation, which means that all your assets in your estate that are already after-tax money are all protected. Remember, if the bank come to your estate and take the 7 million rand, SARS is going to take a state duty of 20% again. So now all of a sudden you've got 7, what's it, 14, 1.4 million rand, or whatever the amount is, 20% coming out of your estate, 1.4 million rand going to SARS. So the actual liability of 7 million has actually cost you 8.4 million to settle. 7 million to settle the debt, 1.4 to pay to SARS. And, you, and that 8.4 is after-tax money. It's in your estate. It's after-tax. It meant that you had to earn probably 14, 15 million rand, pay tax to net that amount of money. It's absolutely ludicrous. Company debt, company insurance. How it works is the company pays for the policy. The company is the owner of the policy. The company is the beneficiary of the policy. And then we draw up an agreement between yourself and your company that says on death or disability, when we receive this money, we will use it to settle the, the liability. It's contractually binding. If you don't have the agreement, you don't have a contingent liability plan. The absence of the agreement will cause bad behavior. If you've got 7 million rand cover on your life with no agreement and you die, the money will come into our business. I've bought you out the business already. I've got a check for 7 million rand 
and no contractual obligation to use that money to release the surety. I can take the 7 million and say, I'm taking my 3 million loan account out and the balance I'm going to draw out as a dividend. And I've got all that money in my personal name. The company is back to square one with no money and the bank still come to your estate and take the 7 million out. You have to have the agreement in place. All right, so the result of no contingent liability is your personal estate will settle those debts. Your personal assets will be raised, sold and to raise the cash. Cash flow will dry up for your family and your spouse. You, there's a strong chance you won't recover it from the business and it could be that your estate is to be declared insolvent. Another one thing people assume is that the bank might not find out. Just realize when you die, your executor writes to every single bank and says, guys, Gary Watkins is dead. Has he got any outstanding liabilities and are there any sureties? Because his job, the executor's job, is to release all those sureties and settle all liabilities before he can distribute any of my assets. He is personally liable for any transgressions, any fraud, misconduct, anything that he does wrong in that estate, he's liable for. He's got to lodge security with the master. So he will look for the debt and he'll make sure it's settled. So don't think that they'll, they'll just be unsighted. It won't. Another thing with sureties, just by the way, if ever you sell a business, if you've signed surety for the business, you make damn sure your sale agreement has got a, a, a suspensive condition that says when this business transaction is, is concluded and the, the sale of shares is done, it's a suspensive condition that you release me from any surety obligation. We've seen a number of agreements where it's not a suspensive condition. It just merely uh, makes reference to the fact that you need to endeavor to release me from my surety. And endeavoring really means trying. So you, you ask if it can happen. If the bank say no, it can't happen. The transaction takes place. You've endeavored, so you've ticked that box. But I'm still liable as a surety on the company that you bought me out of. In five years' time, if you drop that company and you, you make some bad financial decisions and the company closes its doors, there's nothing stopping the bank coming to me saying, hey, Mr. Watkins, you signed surety for this company. I want my money, please. I can't say no. I am the surety. So we've got to be very careful there as well. All right, covering a key man. Some companies need it, some companies don't. Very quick topic. If you have somebody in your business and they die or become disabled, whilst under your employee, and that death or disability will impact on the success of the business, you can actually insure them. You can take out a policy where on their death or disability, the company receives money to sustain itself during that cash flow drop, pay the salaries, lights, water, everything can carry on, keep its head above water, and provide enough cash for you to recruit and train a new person to take over their responsibility. So that's key man cover. Not all businesses need it, but if you want it, you can have it. So it's company-owned policy, company pays it, the company's the beneficiary, and that key individual in that business is insured so that if the company suffers any financial loss, those losses can be covered 
until the successor has been found. Staff retention plans. As you know, one of the biggest problems in our world today is finding, recruiting, and training, and then keeping key, good staff. Costs of recruitment are massive and the likes. What can we do in business in order to retain good quality staff? How can we also attract good quality staff? Remember, a lot of businesses are set up where they get people in, they train them, get them all equipped, and at the prime, when they're finally ready, the competitor knocks on their door and says, Hi, Bob, we have got a business very similar to yours, and we'd like to employ you. What do you earn at the moment? And Bob says, Well, I earn 35000 a month. And they say, Well, I'll offer you thirty-one. Why don't you come over for an interview? Next minute, Bob's handing in his resignation letter to you for a thousand bucks. You've just spent two years of blood, sweat, tears, money, training, everything to get this guy finally into a position where he can actually be productive for your business. And for a thousand bucks, he's left and gone to a competitor. You end up feeling like a recruitment and training center for all your competitors. And all they've got to do is just sit and wait, check your staff out, offer them slightly more. And for them, it's wonderful. They're paying a thousand rand extra and they're getting pre-qualified, trained, wonderful staff. They didn't have to bother with anything. You've done all the hard work. You've gone through the recruitment process. You've paid the recruitment agents money and they've just left you for a thousand bucks. So what you end up doing is going back to Bob and saying, listen, Bob, please don't leave for a thousand rand. Come, I'll give you a thousand five hundred. Please stay. So Bob says, all right, he'll stay. Six months later, knock at the door again. Listen, we've got a similar business. Come over. We'll pay you 33. Bob comes back to you and says, listen, I've been offered 33. I'm ducking. You say, oh, please, Bob, don't go. I'll give you 34 and a half. Bob says, perfect. Lacquer. After a while, Bob thinks, geez, this is quite nice. Every time I go for an interview, I get a salary increase. It's a wonderful model. On top of that, you actually end up paying Bob an unrelated, a market-related salary. You're paying him 35 or 34,000 for a job that's only really worth 30. So now you've got inflated operational expenses, which makes your profit less in your business, or you've got to increase your margin on your, your, your products that you're selling or services, which now makes you uncompetitive. Very bad recipe. You end up in a situation where you will be swallowed up and eaten up by your competitors. So how do we fix this? These are the problems we've got. Losing staff to competitors, the cost of retraining staff, the loss of production whilst the staff are being lost, the cost of recruitment of the new staff member, and then staff looking for financial assistance. So what we do is we have a couple of methods. The one is pension and provident funds. Become an employer of choice. Give your staff a pension fund or a provident fund. Give them something where it gives them death benefits, disability benefits, and when they retire, something for retirement. Another option that people use is called preferred compensation. What this is, is we, if we took that example of Bob again, he'd have a 30,000 rand salary. We've identified him as somebody we want to keep. As you go to Bob, before someone else knocks on his door, and you say to Bob, Bob, I want to put a preferred compensation plan in place. I'm going to put an additional 1,000 rand a month away for you into an investment that you will get tax-free in five years' time. 
The thousand rand extra investment for the company is tax deductible. So it's almost as though it's paid to him as his remuneration. So you're actually giving him 31,000, not 30, but one of it is going into this preferred compensation plan. We draw up an agreement between the employee and the company that says, if Bob stays with you for the five years, he will be able to draw that money out. You can increase the, the thousand rand every year if you want to over the years. You can do whatever you want to do with the premiums and you can structure the plan accordingly. Um, and that you do with consultation with your advisor. But the bottom line is, is that you've start building up this little nest egg external from his salary. And what happens is, is that competitor knocks on Bob's door in two years' time and says, Bob, come and join us. What are you earning? And Bob says, I'm earning 30 grand a month. And he says, I'll pay you 31. So Bob thinks about it and says, you know what? I actually can't leave. I've got this preferred compensation plan that I've had for two years now, and it's worth about 40,000 rand at the moment. And if I leave and join you for a thousand bucks, it's going to take me 40 months just to get back to where I was, but then I would have lost the 40 months that it's been contributed to again, which would be 80,000 plus I've lost all the growth. So no, I can't come. The competitor thinks, geez, this is quite expensive. Yeah, we can't do that. So he waits two or three years, knocks on Bob's door again and says, Bob, do you want to come and join us? What are you earning now? And Bob says, look, I'm on 35,000 a month because he's had salary increases. I'm on 35 a month now. So the competitor says, well, I'll give you 37, two grand more. And Bob says, well, two grand more. The pot is now worth uh, 150,000. For me to leave you is crazy. And I've only got another two years left to run before this thing matures. I can't go. Now you've got your staff member entrenched and with real value. If he leaves, if he decides to go, he walks out with not one cent of that money. Your company keeps every cent of that money and you can use that money to find and train a new person and cover the cost of recruitment and loss of production and all that. He only gets the money if he stays the five-year term. And after five years, you can then renegotiate with Bob and say, right, Bob, I really enjoy you as an employee. I'd like you to continue. I'm going to give you another one of those. But you never, ever end up paying over-market-related salaries. You retain your staff. You give them true value at the end. And they stay because they need to stay and they want to stay. It's not a haggle. So very, very effective retention strategy to put in place. The last topic is just around an exit strategy, guys. And this is something we can't discuss, but it's just, just to identify. If you are a business owner and you are in business, please make sure that your business is actually saleable. If your business is not a saleable business, don't rely on it as part of your retirement plan. There are so many people we consult with, and when we do their financial plan, they say, on retirement, I'm selling my business. It's worth 10 million rand today. And when I sell it, it's going to have a 10% growth every year, and it's going to be worth 30 million rand. And when the guy gets to retirement, his business is worth nothing because the business has been built around the individual. It stands only on the shoulders of that individual. It can't stand independently. We need to identify this as early as possible. Some businesses will never become saleable. 
Some businesses are not saleable now, but we can put plans in place to make them saleable. And then we start your exit strategy sooner rather than later. We need to identify who is going to be buying your business. Is your business value at retirement going to be unattractive because it's too small for a commercial or corporate uh, investor to buy into because it's a one-man band? Or is your business you're building going to be a monster that no individual could afford to buy you out? If you look at retired people who are in business, private business, the younger shareholder is the one who's stuck with the problem. The older guy's going to retire first. How does this person exit? How does the younger partner, the junior partner buy? How do they afford to buy the person out? These are discussions you've got to start having as soon as possible. If you are planning to retain your business, after retirement, do you have a dividend policy written into your shareholders' agreements and your MOI? Because remember, when you retire, you're no longer an employee. You are merely a shareholder, and you're only entitled to a share of profits, dividends. Are there dividends that are declared? If they're declared, how are they declared? When they're declared, how, they, how are they distributed? You need those, those answers now so that you can start planning for your retirement. You also need to put protection mechanisms in place to make sure that business is still there when you retire in 5, 10, 15, 30 years, whatever your retirement age is. And these are statutory things. These are contractual things that you and your partner do with us as a financial services business. Identify this answer. Is your business going to be a life, a life sentence for you where you literally can never retire? You constantly have to be at that business making sure your staff are not stealing from you, your partners are not stealing from you. You've got to make sure that there's a plan in place. Guys, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. If you would like to contact us, please visit us at www.qfg.co.za or you can complete your details below and we'll get hold of you. Our telephone number is 031 24 25 100.